It is Wednesday, March 28th, 2018, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, Timothy Snyder. He is the author of the Resistance Handbook on Tyranny, and he joins us to talk about his latest book, The Road to Unfreedom, about the particular challenges of fighting back against Vladimir Putin and his assault on the West. There's a big shift in the world which you haven't quite understood. You know, you can parade as many tanks as you want down Pennsylvania Avenue, and not a single one of them will deflect a cyberbot. Then we continue with our coverage of last Saturday's March for Our Lives. First, visiting one of the sister marches in North Bend. The fact that kids my age are having to come out and try to make a change is outrageous. It should be the adults and the people in government. Yes. And we talk with Indivisible Washington's 8th District leader, Chris Petzold, who participated in the March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C. All that's coming up, so stay with us. Timothy Snyder is the Levin Professor of History at Yale University. His 2017 book, On Tyranny, became an immediate must-read for people looking to resist Trump and authoritarianism. And now he has a new book, The Road to Unfreedom, which looks at how and why Russia has tried to sow chaos and instability in Europe and the U.S. Timothy Snyder, welcome. My pleasure. So I, I want to start by talking about two concepts that you discuss in the book, uh, and you introduce them in On Tyranny. But the first is something called the politics of inevitability, which is a sense that uh, what we have experienced in the past will endure indefinitely, uh, like the assumption that we in the U.S. have had until, I guess, recently that uh, liberal democracies will continue to proliferate and thrive throughout the world. Um, first, where do you feel this notion originates, uh, specifically for us here in America? Yeah, so what what I'm what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give us a sense of 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 how time can change. You know, a lot of politics and a lot of life in general depends upon how what kind of time you're experiencing. Do you think do you think you're on a road where things are getting better? Do you think you're on a road where things are getting worse? Do you think the same thing happens over and over again? And 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 my general sense is that in the last decade or so Different Americans at different times have, for different reasons, been giving up on this thing we call progress, or which I call the politics of inevitability, and that the, the, the thing which comes around next is the politics of eternity. So by, by inevitability, I mean the sense of progress, that um, we, we, there aren't really alternatives, You know that capitalism brings democracy, that the rest of the world is going to become more like America. And this has a consequence that nobody really has any individual responsibility because we all just say, well, you know, nothing really truly bad can happen. And even if bad things seem to be happening, that's just somehow going to come out in, in the wash. You know, the general the general rules of history are going to sort things out for us. And it also has a consequence or did have the consequence that you forget about history if because if there's only one real possibility – then you don't really need to go about the past because the, the, all those dark possibilities in the past are now are now over with. And we've spent kind of 25 years doing that, and we've raised a whole generation um, without history, which I think is now coming back to, to bite us. And then what happens with the politics of inevitability is when it wears itself out, you know, it wears itself out by – one way it wears itself out in America is that it creates massive inequalities. So, you know, you say there's no alternative to capitalism, there's no alternative to doing capitalism in a certain way, and then you get wealth inequality, which is surpassing that of 1929, and that means that a lot of folks give up on the very idea of, of, of progress and start to look for other things. Right. Um, and, and, and then when those things start to happen, inev- it, inevitability cracks, and it collapses, and it doesn't defend itself, and it gives away really quickly to the thing that I call eternity, which is the notion that things aren't going to get better. Yeah, explain that briefly. 
so again, I mean, these are my ideas. It's not like you can like Google them and like. And, and, you know, get, <laughs> well, your your name anything, will pop up if you do. So. Get, yeah, and get anything about them. I, mean, I just want I just want people to know that I'm not. It's not like I'm drawing this from you know from 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 Plato or you know. These are just things that that I'm that I'm coming up with to try to to try to help us get get some purchase on where we are, sure. so we don't feel so disoriented. So what eternity means are, are it means that. You stop thinking about the future. You give up on the future. You start looking at the past nostalgically, and you start thinking about how things have gotten worse because of the bad guys, because of the enemies, the internal ones or the external ones. And you start to think about history as just a kind of repeating cycle where it's it's us, we, we those the, the real people, the people on the inside, the innocent ones who are constantly defending themselves against the outsiders, whether that's the immigrants or in the United States, you know, that might be the blacks or the Muslims. And and that becomes and that becomes a way of, of thinking about politics, that you don't expect that the government's really going to make things better anymore. What happens is that the government tells you who you're supposed to fear. Right. And you kinda of, you're and you're kind of satisfied if you feel like the government's doing a good job teaching you who you're, who you're supposed to fear. And so the whole structure of politics changes. And again, no one's ever responsible in the politics of eternity, right? The whole thing is a crisis of responsibility because if 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 the only thing that ever happens is that the bad guys come and get us, then again, we don't have any responsibility for making things better. We just we're just all supposed to kind of unify against whoever the enemy is supposed to be. And this is certainly the kind of thing that uh, Putin has espoused, and we certainly saw this with Trump in his run in 2016. Um, but you know, speaking of Putin, I, I think a fundamental question in all of this that you address in your book is why. Putin wants to destabilize the West. And you trace it in part back to a philosopher who was a contemporary of Lenin named Ivan Ilyin, uh, not exactly a household name uh, here in the U.S., but uh, he believed that the West was a spiritual threat to Russia, and Putin is very much an adherent to this philosophy. So what should we know about Ilyin? Yeah, and you're right. He's not He's not very well known in, in the West. He wasn't very well known anywhere until until recently. What we need to know about him is that he is the the prophet of this kind of politics of inevitability. His his view of the world was that, sorry, of, of eternity. His view of the world was that nothing is really true. Um, there aren't really facts. It's all just a big mess. Um, the only thing which really matters deeply is the goodness and innocence of Russia. And what follows from that is that anything that Russia does to defend itself from this cruel, corrupt outside world is completely justified. It also follows that that it's not wrong to lie. It's not wrong to mess around with other people's psychology. It's certainly not wrong to mess up with to mess with their democracies, because the only thing that really matters in the end is protecting Russia. The only good, the only true thing is is inside Russia. The other thing which is interesting about Eileen is that. Because he was he was a fascist. He was he was a right wing, extreme right wing thinker of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But his ideas about the way the state is supposed to look can be used by people like Putin, who are fundamentally oligarchs, to justify how things already are. If you're at the top of a state like Russia, um, if you're the Putin clan, if you're the top of Russia, nothing can really change. You know, you you can't have the rule of law because that would get you out of power. Um, you depend upon basically extracting minerals from the ground and, and being in charge of that. So what you have to be able to convince the people of is that the lack of change is normal. Eternity is, is normal. And Eileen helps you with that because what Eileen tells you is that 
history is just a cycle of other people coming around trying to take things away from Russians. And so that's the pattern by which Putin since 2012 has tried to govern. You, you know, what happens in Ukraine is a threat to Russia. Mm-hmm. What happens in Europe is a threat to Russia. What happens in America is a threat to Russia. But then the spiritual threat thing that you mentioned is very important. We're always a threat to Russia because we exist. If you're Putin, um, you can't. You don't have the rule of law. You failed to create the rule of law. You're never going to create the rule of law. That's one thing which is which is certain. Um, but the very existence of, of the European Union or the very existence of the United States shows that the rule of law is possible and that it creates much greater prosperity and much greater and much greater freedom. So those examples have to be done away with. You do away with them in your own media. And then you do away with them in real life. You try to make the European Union break down. You try to make the United States break down. Right. And that might sound like a really ambitious thing to be doing. You know, wh- why should why should they be trying to do something like that? We have this huge military budget. And the interesting thing is, it's cheap. It's easy. The, the entire Russian cyber budget, all things considered, is probably much less than the price of one F-35 fighter. Right. So going after the world by way of cyber and by way of psychology is relatively easy. It's a it's a it's a big vulnerability. And that's the main that's the main way that they go after us. You get a lot of bang for your buck that way. Exactly. I mean, this is I think this is a big shift in the world, which you haven't quite understood. You know, you can you can parade as many tanks as you want down Pennsylvania Avenue and not a single one of them will deflect a, a cyber bot. Well, so let's talk about some of the techniques that uh, that Putin has used in, in his cyber warfare. Uh, one that I think speaks to our unique vulnerabilities is something you talk about in a YouTube lecture called Divide and Fool. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, so we, we have these basic d- divisions, and we don't realize that these divisions are also vulnerabilities. I think uh, uh, precisely because America is so big, we have a tendency to, to think of ourselves as being the same thing as the world. And we don't realize that people out there in the world can look at us and look at our divisions and see them as 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 uh, as vulnerabilities, as susceptibilities, as as points of attack. So one, one of our vulnerabilities, obviously, is race. So in 2016, what the Russians did was they, they tried to both um, inflame and encourage white nationalism and white racism, white supremacy. And by the way, that's a sincere interest on their part. They're not they're not just faking it. They're real world connections between the white supremacists in the US and 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 Russia. And you talk about a lot of those in the book and they're they're quite funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, these are you know these are long term things. I mean, Richard Spencer's wife is the translator of the most important Russian fascist. You know, these are these are those are long term connections. You know, Russian propaganda uses American white supremacists um, in order to talk about the U.S. on on television. So, but but beyond that, you know, so that one's sincere. But they take the issue and they try to push both sides of it. So they they also try to use the emotions of African Americans who have suffered at the hands of of the police and try to get everyone all riled up so that nobody can think. I mean, an example that that comes after the book is are the Parkland shootings, where within an hour the 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 Russian bots were already active on Twitter on both sides, trying to get you know on the side of gun control. And also on the side of um, of conspiracy, on on the, on the side of the, these people are just crisis actors. It never happened, you know. And that and that's to make us all so crazy that we can't really think about things. And if we can't really think about things, then we're not going to make policy, right? And mm. and we're not going to move forward. 
Well, so let's fast forward a little bit and talk about Trump, uh, because you you talk a great deal about how uh, Putin used these levers to uh, to put Trump into into place. Um, you know, you said that Putin would like to see Trump weaken the state and create as much chaos as possible. But a lot of what Trump does seems to be motivated solely by self-interest, right? You know, things intended to either enrich or aggrandize himself. Do you see these things as as consistent? Yeah, I really do. I mean, it's not that it's not that Trump, you know, to a degree much greater than we, I think, appreciate. Trump was a creation of, of Russia. Very serious contacts begin in 2013. Even before that, the Russians are using Trump properties in order to, to launder their money. And you're talking um, about Trump Tower in particular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, that's that's where it starts in the 90s, but it's been it's been going on since then. And you know, between Trump's nomination and his his victory in the election, 70 percent of the purchasers of his properties were um, were off were offshore shell companies. So you know that should tell us a lot about where the money is actually coming from, but and but the larger picture there is that Trump and Putin are coming from the same world universe. They think that capitalism is a joke. They think the free market's a joke. They think it's only the little guy or the idiot who really believes in the rules. And you know, Trump and Trump and Putin have in common this notion that it's really about getting around the rules, breaking the rules, la- laughing at the rules, and then and then lying about it. The, the real most important point of contact between. The Putin camp and the Trump camp are in the gray zones of capitalism, the places that are not regulated, the 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 the, the offshore places, and so I think it's perfectly consistent to think of Trump as being someone who's entirely self-interested, and think of him as something who's a tool for Russia, because what Russia wants out of the U.S. is for everybody to think that the law is a joke, the rules are a joke, there is no truth, there are no facts. Um, that that's that's the that's the worldview which is most comfortable for Russia. If people adopt that worldview here, then our institutions fall apart. So Trump, it, the, the fact that Trump has no ideology is the point, right? He, he, has, he, he doesn't believe in anything, and, and that's, that's the most terrifying thing about him. Well, I want to talk a little bit about how Trump and Putin continue to, to interact, because there have been a couple of interesting developments in the news. Um, the Trump administration moved to expel 60 diplomats and close a consulate uh, here in Seattle. Uh, they also finally implemented the sanctions imposed by Congress, uh, this all apparently in response to the poisoning of uh, two ex-spies in London. But Trump also called Putin to congratulate him on his, quote unquote, electoral victory. So how do you square all this in terms of their relationship? Well, I mean, it, getting getting away from the day to day stuff, you know, let's let's look at the, the, the big picture. The big picture issues are, number one, fossil fuels. Russia, the current system in Russia survives by the exploitation of fossil fuels. And Mr. Trump's administration, no doubt for many reasons, um, is very much in favor of the contained exploitation of fossil fuels. Number two issue um, would be would be the cyber war of 2016. Um, there's a pretty broad consensus across most of the people who look at this that Russia intervened in our elections, um, decisively or not, but intervened in, in the sovereignty of the United States in 2016, breaking a whole lot of laws along the way. Mr. Trump does not acknowledge this. He doesn't acknowledge, and, and many people along with him don't acknowledge the, funda- the fundamental character of that. That's That's number two. Number three, in terms of Russia's interests, are maintaining the possibility of offshoring money 
in in the UK and the US. So we don't see it like this, but you know, basically we're the Cayman Islands. Um, we're a place where people can offshore their money because you can have anonymous corporations in Delaware and Wyoming. Um, you can do anonymous real estate deals in a lot of places. If we really want to punish, and we here also mean the UK, if we really wanted to punish Russia, what we would do is close those loopholes. That's definitely not happening. And then to get to diplomacy, here's the thing. Um, what Russia really doesn't like the U.S. State Department, um, and what has happened since Trump's been in power is that American diplomats have basically had to leave the Russian Federation. Remember last summer, I think it was 755 of our diplomats were, were expelled. Trump doesn't really believe in diplomats anyway. He doesn't really care about the State Department. Foreign policy, such as it is, is being run from other places. So I don't think mutual expulsions of diplomats are such a big big deal from Trump's point of view. Um, and, and if there is a story about diplomacy, it's that our State Department has been, unfortunately, really hollowed out under the Trump administration, which would have, which is exactly what Mr. Putin would have wanted. Sure. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's the big picture, unfortunately. So you have said, and a lot of people are very focused on the 2018 midterm elections right now as a way to kind of put the brakes on a lot of what is happening. You have said that you fear that the Trump White House might try to use the specter of Russian interference uh, in the midterm elections to try to delegitimize those elections. Talk about that and, and how also how you feel we might maybe push back against that. Yeah, there, there are a lot of things that I talk about just to, to try to make them not happen, <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> and that's one of them. Okay. You know, so, so Mr. Tillerson, when he was still Secretary of State, he adopted a very, very laissez-faire attitude about Russian interference in the 2018 elections. I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks ago, Mr. Tillerson said, yeah, the Russians are probably going to intervene in 2018, but what can, what can, what can you do? Shrug. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's life, basically. And that, and that got me thinking that, you know, maybe – they were gonna. They were gonna. They were gonna change their tune on electoral interference and say, you know, if the Democrats win, then they'll say, oh yeah, this time there was electoral interference. Um, and it's, it's 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 you know, and, and the fact that they're not doing the federal. The, some of the states are, you know, but the fact that the federal government is not taking any action about this, and is, is has been so slow to talk about what actually happened in 2016, makes me a little suspicious of all of this. But. Frankly, what I think is that if we, you know, if we all get out and vote and we make it look as normal as possible and we pay attention in our own states and try to apply pressure in our own states to get our states to do what they can, that, that this is not going to work, that it's going to look kind of ridiculous if they say, oh, no, you know, they didn't intervene on it for us, but they did intervene for you. I think if we think about this and get the issue out and we just sort of think of that this is pro- that this might be a contingency plan of theirs, if we just think about it ahead of time, that makes it much less likely that it's going to happen. So exposure therapy is really what we're talking about here. So, yeah. All right. So, um, you know, I, I kind of would like to end our discussion on a hopeful note, uh, if, if possible. Um, you know, we've seen, as I was reading your book, it occurred to me that we've seen democracies fail uh, after World War One, after World War II, uh, even after the fall of the Soviet Union. But we've seen a number of those countries return to a state of liberal democracy, uh, I think most notably Germany uh, and some of the former Soviet bloc countries. Do you see those examples as instructive? for us? That's a great question. I, I, if you look at, I, I think one of the things that has to happen in the U.S. is that we have to learn from our mistakes. And to learn from your mistakes means recognizing that you've made a mistake. This is something that we've gotten really bad at. There's been so little reflection, for example, about, about the Iraq war. And, and there's unfortunately very little reflection, at least in places that count, about 2016 and the way, and the, way the election 
went. So if you, it, the German example is an example of which involves a certain amount of reflection on the past. That's the part which we're really missing. And you know, one of the things I was trying to do in writing these, in writing on tyranny and road to unfreedom, was to, to, to get us to reflect. You know, so to get us out of this American exceptionalism where we think everything is fine and we're better than everyone else, until obviously it's it's not fine, and then we don't have any intellectual resources because we can't look at the examples of of anybody else. We can't look from other perspectives. So yeah, I, I, I do think that we can turn this around. And there are there are some really good signs which come from activists, which come from people who march, which come from investigative journalists, of which there's a renaissance, mm-hmm. um, which come from some of the lawyers who are doing some some really interesting things, um, and which also come from the people who are just thinking creatively now about how how things could be better in the U.S. as opposed to just to just blocking the bad things that are happening now. There, there are some signs that we could that we could turn this around, and it's the right question to end on because of course the whole the point of resistance or the point of figuring out what's going on is not to get back to 2016. The point is to become a better citizen, you know, yourself and and for others, so that there there can be some more interesting, you know, some more interesting and some more just version of the U.S. Um, that we come around to in the end. And I, of course, would be remiss if I did not mention that you've laid out twenty strategies for fighting back in your book on tyranny. But uh, your latest book is "The Road to Unfreedom." Timothy Snyder, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really glad we could do it. Thanks a lot. Last Saturday, over a million people in over 800 cities across the country and even the world took part in the March for Our Lives, which was organized by the surviving students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Here in Washington, the largest of the so-called sister marches took place in Seattle, with several thousand people there. But there were dozens across the state, including one that happened in North Bend. There's a crowd of about 300 people in attendance at the main intersection in North Bend, spread across the four corners. If you've never been there, the diner from Twin Peaks is there on one of the corners. So it's a lot of people for that small intersection. We checked in first with Snoqualmie Valley Indivisible leader Michelle Straka, who organized the event, and asked her if she was surprised at the turnout. I'm really pleasantly shocked. It's nice to know that there are enough people here who, whether they're Democrats or not, they they care about gun safety and new legislation. And even the cars that are passing by are mostly in our favor. We do occasionally get that that finger, but that, but other than that, um, this is this is wonderful. We talk next with Kim Schreier, who is running for Congress in the 8th District, where North Bend is situated. During a speech she gave, Schreier mentioned that this issue is very personal to her, and I asked her about that. I am a pediatrician, so my patients are all here, and I feel deeply for them and concerned for them that when they go to school, they should be safe at school. But don't forget that I'm also a mom. I send my own child to public schools every single day, and it is absurd that we keep having to have this conversation 19 years after Columbine. This should have been dealt with long ago. And I'm just thrilled that my patients and these students are braver than our elected officials, and they're taking care of business. We need to keep the momentum going so we do not forget about this issue come November of 2018. It's too important. 
Next, we caught up with Jason Ritterizer, who is also running for Congress in the 8th. I asked him about what it means to be at a rally in a place like North Bend, where there's a statistically higher percentage of support for guns and gun ownership than there is in Seattle or other parts of the state. Uh, people in this country, I think, have looked at, at uh, gun ownership through the lens of freedom. Uh, and uh, I think those folks, whether you're in North Bend or Ellensburg, whether you're a gun owner or not, all recognize that true patriotism is in protecting our children and standing up for our kids and making sure uh, that we're protecting them, not just in our homes, not just in our communities, but in our schools as well. And so I don't, uh, I don't think there's a divide that we think there is in this country. The NRA needs to go, uh, and I think most people know that. Bill Ramos is a Democrat running for one of two state representative seats in the 5th Legislative District, which includes North Bend. I asked him why he came out to the rally. I came out to, to uh, talk to the community, to listen to them, see what they're doing, because right now our community is being led by our younger folks, and the adults are being showed how to do things. And that is just, it's, it's poetry. It's poetry. It, you know, how could we sit there and go, what? They're telling us we're not doing it right. Watch, pay attention, now do it right. And so we have to do that right. And I'm so happy the main thing, that one of the things that just happened recently with the budget is that now the CDC can study gun violence because that's such a big piece of this. It's not just gun control. It's that sociological piece that is happening that we have to figure out the whys behind this as well to really put an end to it. It's a big, complicated issue. So let's put an end to it. Let's follow our young folks and do it. And we also spoke with Lisa Callen. Lisa is a Democrat running for the other of the two state house seats in the 5th Legislative District. And I asked her her thoughts on the size of the turnout. I am so excited at the size of the crowd. I was hopeful. And, um, you know, you, just, you don't ever quite know there's this huge rally that's happening in Seattle. But having it here in North Bend, where it's local, and it's, you know, you're, you're having your local voice, and you're seeing your local kids have this conversation and bring that energy, I'm stoked. Really stoked. And finally this week, we check in with Chris Petzold. Chris is the founder and leader of Indivisible Washington's 8th District, and she, along with fellow Indivisible member Aaron Albanese, traveled to Washington, D.C. to participate in the March for Our Lives there, which was the one that was put on by the students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Hello, Chris. Hi there. So we saw footage of the march on TV, uh, and this was for most of us after we had gotten back from our respective events here uh, in the state. But give us an idea of what the mood was like on the ground where you were. Yeah, well, being a first-time visitor to D.C., I was just, you know, generally in awe anyway. Mm. Um, And it was a beautiful day, which we, you know, really didn't expect. It was supposed to snow. Yeah. Um, And so... it. It was um, it was a good atmosphere. We we sort of Ubered in close to Pennsylvania Avenue, which is where the march was. Um, the the mall uh, we couldn't have it on the National Mall because there was another event booked there supposedly, um, and so it was thought to be a march um, down Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and so then we walked up a little bit um, and saw the White House, and I didn't even really want to look over there too much. Um, <laughs> and then um, there was jumbotrons everywhere and um, lots of speakers playing music just as people were gathering. We got there around 1030, and it started at noon. And um, we really couldn't get past, like, 9th Street, 
So we could only really go a few blocks. And boy, were we crowded in there. So well, so what was the crowd like? Was it mm-hmm. mostly students? Was it a mix of, of students and uh, people, say, our age? Yeah, <laughs> it was it, it really was a mix. Um, you know, having been to quite a few um, marches now, there were um, a lot more young people than I've seen in other marches, which was awesome. And it seemed to be that there were people from all over the country just all over the place. We'd hear people talking. They were from New York or Chicago or California or uh, whatever. They were they were from everywhere. And, in fact, you met a couple of students from Parkland, Florida, staying at your hotel, right? Yeah. So I ran into a couple of students the night before the march, and they were wearing their Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, sweatshirts. It was two uh, teenage girls that I didn't recognize, you know, from TV and their mom. And so I went up to them and I said, are you students from Parkland? And they said, yeah, we are. And I said, wow, I'm, I'm here for the march. And I just wanted to tell you how sorry I am about everything that happened. And, you know, and I kind of touched the mom's shoulder and I said, as a fellow mom, I can only imagine how awful Mm. this was. And my heart just goes out to all of you. And, um, and thank you for being here. And I said, um, you know, how are you doing? And they said, we're, we're doing okay. As good as can be expected. We're glad to be here. And I said, you know, what's it like going back to school? And they said, it was surreal and normal at the same time. Mm. And I, I asked them if, um, if, and if, all of the buildings were open, you know, and they said, no, um, parts are just completely closed off. They're not sure what's going to happen to that. Um, and so I didn't really want to take too much of their time, but I just said, you know, I'm really sorry and thank you for being here and I'm marching for you. Um, and left it at that. It was really neat. You know, you mentioned that when you were there for the march on Pennsylvania Avenue, there were jumbotrons set up. So I know that you got a chance to hear some of the speakers. And I'd love to hear about that a little bit, particularly the Emma Gonzalez speech and the moment where she paused for six minutes and 20 seconds to commemorate the amount of time that the shooting lasted. Um, Tell us a little bit about that moment and some of the speakers. Yeah, so um, it the speakers, I, I was just basically had to just stand there in awe the whole time because um, I'm quite sure that most of us adults could not get up on that stage and speak so eloquently and, you know, especially after what had just happened. And the other thing that, you know, really struck me was that it was all about the kids. It wasn't politicians. It wasn't movie stars. It wasn't, you know, talking heads from wherever. It was these kids and the kids from Florida recognized that they come from a privileged area and they lifted up um, the less privileged uh, students and kids from all around the country. And I just thought that was amazing. Yeah, I know they really took pains to include uh, communities of color uh, and to call attention to the fact that in addition to gun violence that happens in school shootings, that in uh, many neighborhoods, this is just a fact of life, a sad yeah. fact of life, and that kids have to worry about getting shot on their way to school. Yeah. It, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. One of, the, one of the young men that was up there talked about his twin brother getting shot walking home from school. Yeah. And, you know, regarding the Emma part, um, you know, she got up and 
you know, just seeing her, she's been su- she's been such a uh, an avatar for this whole movement, and so it was really kind of thrilling to see her, and um, in the part where she listed, you know, she just rapid fire listed off all of the names of the kids who were killed, and then um, went silent. Um, at first, you know, I gotta say, no one really understood what was going on, mm-hmm. and with. I don't know how many thousands of people, like somewhere between 500 and 800,000 people were there. You could literally hear a pin drop. The only thing you heard was people sniffling, including myself. And so I just remember standing there on Pennsylvania Avenue, looking up at her and realizing that she and I both had a tear traveling down our cheek at the same sort of um, place. And um, it was really powerful. Yeah. And then um, realizing what that pause was, was, was incredible. It was incredible. One of the students said uh, about the rally that this wasn't the end of the work, but the beginning of the work. Mm-hmm. Did you get a sense of momentum and commitment from people coming away from this? Yeah. Yeah. So when we were just walking in, we saw multiple people registering people to vote. Mm-hmm. And then whenever there was a a sort of a pause in the program, you know, in between one of the singers and the speakers, the chant that would go up in the crowd was vote them out, vote them out, vote them out. And so I was thinking, wow, this is it. This is a turning point. This is what is going to turn this this from being a tragedy into something that we can make change out of. This isn't going away. And I thought this is, unfortunately, this is what had to happen, but this is what's going to seal us for our blue wave in November 2018. You know, I know that you also went to Indivisible's national headquarters there uh, Mm -hmm. in D.C., and leaders Ezra Levin and Leah Greenberg were at the march, and I know that you spoke with them at the headquarters. What were their thoughts uh, coming away from the march? It was like me. They were they were both really just in awe and inspired by these young people. Um, it was incredible. And Leah Greenberg um, told me that um, they had actually gotten a chance to meet some of the kids and their parents. And some of the parents told them that they had um, given them a copy of the Indivisible Guide to read. And Leah Greenberg said she was just so humbled by that. And um I just had a moment of reflection like I've had so many times to realize that I'm involved in the right movement here with, you know, two people like that that just lead with such humility. And um, I I just I thought that was awesome that that was her response. (laughs) Yeah, but that is awesome. Well, Chris, thank you for checking in with us and uh, welcome back. Thank you so much. Glad to be back. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you have not done so already, do head over to indivisiblepodcast.org and subscribe to get the show delivered to your email inbox. And speaking of email, the address for our show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Timothy Snyder and Chris Petzold. My special thanks to Aaron Albanese and Diana Messina. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.